I, I think high emotional intelligence, high governmental emotional intelligence is what's going to separate, let's say, okay cities from great or thriving cities in the years to come. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, and Odyssey Advisors. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk, turkey chef, Liz <laughs> Farmer. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. I uh, This is our, our first recording after Thanksgiving. So uh, we actually still, um, we still have a teensy bit of turkey left and and stuffing. So um, we I think we've done done pretty well. I usually do a um, like a Thanksgiving leftovers pie a couple of days after Thanksgiving. I make uh, make pie crust and shove everything in there, you know, and bake it. So that usually takes care of a lot of it. But uh, you, do you still have leftovers? Uh, we we do and <laughs> have have done the uh, the pot pie approach, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. which it does it does seem to lend itself well to that. We've also the last couple of years taken to for whatever reason end up having like takeout Chinese on Black Friday. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if, if you're creative about it, you can get an interesting mix of leftover rice cranberries, Brussels sprouts, chicken <laughs> oh pot chicken, like it all, it all kind of, kind of works if you're, if you're just looking to clean out the fridge at the, at the end of the weekend. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what all of the Thanksgiving talk has to do with our topic for today, but nonetheless, uh, let's get into it. So we're talking today, uh, Liz, to Megan Kilgore, who is the city auditor at the city of Columbus, Ohio. And there's lots of things that we could discuss with Megan. First and foremost, her uh, recent uh, awarding of the Freda Johnson Award for Excellence in the Field of Public Finance, awarded by an organization called Northeast Women in Public Finance. It's a really wonderful award and a great recognition of uh, the esteem that Megan is is held in the profession. So we're thrilled to be able to, to talk to her about that, among many other topics. Certainly with Columbus, we think about uh, income taxation. It's one of the few large cities in the country that is uh, dependent primarily on the income tax. And that brings a whole series of policy and other challenges. I'm, I'm sure we can get into that with her. But I think when we think about Columbus on sort of the national stage, the main thing that comes to mind is financial reporting and then their effectiveness in timely financial reporting. We talk often uh, on this podcast and anyone who's familiar with the landscape of state and local government accounting knows that unfortunately, one of the defining features of state and local government accounting is that it takes a long time for financial statements to be produced. You know, Our, our friends in the for-profit space are typically turning around unaudited financial reports uh, each quarter, usually within 10 days or two weeks of the end of the quarter. And in our world, it tends to take uh, eight or nine months to get an audited set of financial statements out after the end of the fiscal year. And so critics say that you're talking about very long lag time between the end of the fiscal year and then reporting. And that information may be less useful by the time that it that it appears. And there's a big debate about whether that's feasible to expect a faster turnaround. And if you do, how do you go about doing that? In some ways, Columbus has really stood out as being uh, a jurisdiction that, that is able to turn around its financial statements in a much faster time frame. Some would argue it's still not fast enough, but when we're looking for success stories in this space, we can definitely look to Columbus and it's really interesting to get Megan's perspective on how they go about doing that. Liz, when you think about local government financial disclosure timeliness, certainly something you've written a lot about, what comes to mind and uh, what are you hoping to learn from our conversation with Megan? 
Yeah, I'd say one of the biggest themes throughout the um, putting together these financial reports is that herding cats mentality. It is it is a huge it is a huge feat to put all of those pieces together. These are beasts of a document, and the process is it, it takes a long time, and then and then. And that's that's one leg of it. And then the other leg of it is getting it audited. And whether that's something that you do in-house or that you have an external auditor doing, that's that's a whole other step in the process that also very much takes some time. And, and then you get into most recently with the staffing issues and that exacerbates everything I just described. And, and in particular with the auditing situation, both in the public sector and in the private sector, there is an auditor shortage in, in a lot of places. And that is slowing down that that very last leg of the process of, of getting these annual comprehensive financial reports out. That was one of the reasons that uh, Standard and Poor's issued a warning to 100 plus governments earlier this year that were late on their 2021 financial reports. And for most governments, fiscal year 2021 ended over two at, at that point, at the time S&P had issued this warning, it had been two years since fiscal 2021 had ended for most governments. Governments are, I'm air quoting now, supposed to get their financial reports in something like uh, nine months after the close of a fiscal year. A lot of places do that. A lot of places miss that miss that target, I should say. And so ultimately, SAP had, had warned at least 160-something governments uh, that uh, they could have their rating withdrawn if they did not produce their financial report for 2021 in, in a number of days. Ultimately, what happened is I think I think uh, about 60 or so governments did get their rating withdrawn. Um, a number of other governments worked were in communication with the rating agency about what they were doing. But all this to say is that the 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 real kind of through line here is is it's about transparency, which which of course the rating agencies need, but also residents, taxpayers, all of us who are interested in state and local government finances. Um, the data isn't much good to us if it's three years old because that doesn't tell us what's happening now. And that has been a consistent thing with, with government finance reporting in general. And so places like Columbus that get that information out quick enough so that policymakers and, and decision makers can actually do something with that information in a way that is effective. I mean, that's that's kind of the ideal, right? And that's what that's what you want to see most of the time. But um, but just the 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 complications and the staffing and all the other pieces uh, that can slow things down with government financial reporting are a real hindrance. For sure. And one of the things that comes up all the time is in response to this is is you hear critics of governmental accounting or the the governmental accounting model that we have for states and localities will say that the weighted to deal with this is just to simplify the process and to mm -hmm. say, to ask the question, you know, does anybody actually read all of the information <laughs> in these financial reports? And therefore, is it worth taking the time and effort to, to produce them? The, the, the GASB, interestingly enough, is either just did or is on the cusp of, of releasing statement number 100, you know, which for those of us wow. who can think <laughs> back to, to GASB statement 34 in circa 1999, that seemed like they had come a long way and, and had built out a financial reporting model that was pretty comprehensive at that point. And yet there's always the demand. There's always new issues. There's always new treatments of different kinds of transactions. And so there's this just constant march to include more or at least reconfigure the information that's included in financial reports. And that's not going to stop. right? And, and so in so many ways, the challenge is, is to say, given that complexity, given that inescapable complexity, what do we do about that? How do you how do you put that information out there 
in a timely fashion rather than lament the fact that you have to put out all of that information. It seems like we've, in so many ways, moved on from that debate, which I think is, is generally a good thing. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Megan Kilgore, who is the city auditor for the city of Columbus, Ohio. And I should also note, recent winner of the Freda Johnson Award for Trailblazing Women in Public Finance, awarded by the Northeast Women in Public Finance. Wonderful award. Megan, congratulations and welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thank you, Justin and Liz. It's great to be here. Yes, such a well-deserved award. I, I remember you first reached out to me and we met like a year or two years ago and, and we immediately launched in this conversation about producing annual uh, financial reports and um, just the depth of knowledge and thought that you bring to that process alone is um, is pretty incredible. So congratulations and uh, we're excited to, ha- to have you on the pod. Um, for our listeners, can you give us a kind of a, just a, a quick rundown of of the state of Columbus's financial position uh, for for those for those folks who who maybe aren't familiar with the city. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and first of all, thank you. The Frida Johnson Award it means the world to me. It really does for what Frida stands for, um, especially. And I'm really excited and and grateful for your acknowledgement. So thank you. Um, I love that we're starting out with this question. You know, what is the um, the financial trends? What are the financial trends of the city of Columbus? I mean, if that's not clickbait for a very nerdy financial podcast, I don't mm-hmm. know what is. You know, context is really really helpful when looking, as you know, at any government. And Columbus, we're a little bit of an anomaly because we are an income tax driven city. Um, Just shy of 80% of our revenues actually come from income tax. So, you know, we're, we're a little bit of an anomaly. However, we are also anomalous in the sense that we have a really enviable position of having a kind of self-churning economy. Um, through the last few years, there have been incredible investments, a lot through uh, the Ohio State University, their innovation district, as well as our major healthcare ecosystem here that have created this kind of self-propelling um, economy where we're growing each and every single day. So, you know, with an income tax driven city, one of the biggest concerns that we all had, especially through the pandemic was figuring out how people were going to be working. As you know, you pay income tax where you actually do the work. And so there was a huge amount of of concern and questions around how are we going to track that and what will that do to our revenues, our revenue streams? And the good news is about kind of Columbus is we're growing right now. I'll, I'll put it this way. We are outgrowing our remote work problem. We have definitely had revenue loss shifting to our bedroom communities, resulting from those folks who are, you know, staying at home to work. But we've also grown in our core city, folks who are remotely working, but also who are moving here for for more jobs. So um, we are able to outgrow it right now. We're ending the year about four and a half percent up over this time last year. So speaking of income tax, Megan, I, I wonder, you know, that is that is different as local governments go. Do you have to think differently about all of the kind of fundamentals that we think about when we think about budgeting and financial management? Are there different kinds of financial policies you need? Are you forecasting those revenues differently? How does that change just the way that you go about administering Columbus's budget? 
That's a, it's a good question. So income tax, um, it really does materially differ. And, I, and my kind of basis of knowledge is I was a municipal advisor. I studied governments not only around Ohio, but worked with numbers around largely the Midwest. And you got to see, you know, kind of budgetary trends, especially revenue cycles, cash flows, you know, which ones, which governments are perhaps more volatile, which ones are more stable. And I so kind of contextually, income tax here at the city of Columbus is a very stable revenue source. We historically, even through things like, um, you know, recessionary trends, things in the past that have been, you know, outside of the pandemic, I should, I should say, we tend to move very slowly, kind of like a big ocean liner. We don't, you know, we're not, you know, one employer town where we will quickly have a fallout if an employer leaves. Instead, where we would be considered at risk would be after a very long and sustained period of economic downturn. And so, for example, coming out of the double dip recession, you know, we first, um, and this was the story of many governments, of course, around the country, but for us, it was the compounding effect where, you know, you have a little bit of a downturn and you, you tighten your belt. A, a, a couple of years of that and you no longer have much room. So you have to start maybe cutting non-essential things. Um, and then eventually you have to make really tough decisions. And, you know, fortunately, that's kind of the the com- comparison with respect to the pandemic is in Columbus, you know, COVID was a very quick downward decline and then a relatively speedy incline as folks started working, just working differently. And so if you look at our our trends from afar, it looks like a Nike swoosh, quick down, you know, right back up. And the resiliency of that, I, I think, is really, really powerful. And so our major employers were able to simply keep working. Um, and I, I would say, you know, historically as well, we can also be really quite clear in terms of things like cash flows because we are really collecting monies every single day of the year. And as a follow-up to that, for cities that are property tax dependent, one of the gripes, of course, is that you often don't have a lot of flexibility to make property tax policy within the state framework. Same with sales tax, or there's lots of voter approval requirements and the like. Do you have any additional or new autonomy relative to your your income tax? It's um, one of the most powerful things about income tax as your primary source of revenue, in, in my opinion, is the ability to thoughtfully employ, let's say, creative policies to actually kind of create a self-fulfilling prophecy in your local government. And let me give you a couple examples. Let's take um, income tax. What can you do? Like income taxes, of course, based off of one's wages, right? And so the more that we're able to grow the wages of a tax base, especially broken apart by different types of workers, focusing on those who are perpetually left behind or perpetually stuck at that kind of let that very um, underskilled level, what we can do as a, as a government is employ policies, create incentives that can actually create um, a better or stronger tax base for our government. And, you know, two easy ones to look at would be things like education and childcare workers, uh, both of which we're actively doing quite a bit with right now. So um, I'm going to try and do some some quick math here, but 
education, let's just give you an example. If you are a student coming out of, of high school, you might have a high school degree. You go out and get your first job. Let's just say you're making $35,000 a year for the sake of just my easy math, because our income tax rate's 2.5% here. So you're a student coming out, you're 35K a year. That individual, if we are able to apply you know, funding from our city to thoughtfully incentivize. Maybe it's upskilling to match a new employer, and maybe it's simply getting people into more positions of upward mobility. But if we're able to get that student access to community college or four-year undergrad degree, maybe at a community college, they're now making $45,000 a year. And let's just say as a city, we spent $1,000, just easy math, to be able to help that student remain in school, eliminate the barriers for that student having to drop out of school because of a variety of reasons that we all know. If we're able to keep that student enrolled, get them a four, you know, two-year, four-year degree, they're making 45K a year. In four years' time, roughly, we're going to be repaid as a city for that initial $1,000 investment. And anything thereafter is simply gravy, right? Um, there's a moral obligation, of course, to education. I don't want to oversimplify it. I'm just simply suggesting that there's a lot of power with income tax. There's a lot of ideas and creatively as a city and other you know, colleagues around the country, we do try and really challenge ourselves. Where can we have the most ROI and best create the future that we want to, we want to be? Yeah, as opposed to, I suppose, something like the property tax where that, that ROI might be lagged, if it appears at all. Absolutely. You know, income tax, um, like, like many taxes, it's really hard to infer how one stands with things like equity. And, you know, whether it's fines or fees, um, income taxes, federal taxes, we, we know actually very, very, very little about the individual filing those taxes. We can make a lot of inferences because we can back into things like census tract data and other things, but we're really challenging ourselves. We've, we've employed so much technology here in the last, um, especially four years. I had, uh, when I came into office, my predecessor, incredible legend in, in public finance, but he was not one for a lot of technology. And, and we knew that um, he, he, you know, he was my, my biggest mentor. Um, but when I, when I came into office, my senior team and I, we broke down, you know, areas that we saw we had to either update our technology because it was right for our residents, it was right for our systems, or it was right for our ability to simply be better stewards. And we've we've done so, we've done some really incredible things. I'd love to get into some topics around AI with you and things like that. But in, in part of doing that, we now have the ability to capture more types of data that help inform us to be more equitable. Um, and that's something that I hope um, to challenge ourselves on in the coming years. Let's get into that because one of the things that I really love uh, talking about with you is 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 that topic of of using technology and AI. And one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot, or I've asked you about a lot, is producing annual comprehensive financial reports because Columbus is ridiculously fast at doing it. Uh, and and you and I spoke at length about this after I wrote uh, a couple of pieces about SNP putting cities on watch for not having produced even their 2021 reports, much much less uh, years later. So can you talk about that? You know, how do you do it? And and what advice do you have for jurisdictions who, who might want to uh, try to do that themselves? You know, it's, it's funny. Um, the first first thing I would say is, you know, much credit goes to my deputy, Darlene Wilds. She's the one who built out the program. Um, Darlene is, is kind of like the LeBron James of financial reporting and governmental accounting. She's just an incredible base of knowledge. 
but she has built out what is really our year-round program. And, you know, it has to be acknowledged that this does require a lot of expertise in-house, and it does require a lot of technology. But we're kind of a well-oiled machine now, to your point. We do get our ACFR out within 90 days. Um, for us, that's the norm. And one of the things that um, I, I would say we get called a lot about from folks around the country is, how do you do that? And the answer is the secret sauce is that we have an audit firm as a partner and we contractually obligate them, our external auditors, to sign off on our ACFR, on our audit by our official date. And that's within 90 days. You know, that does mean working um, in sprints throughout the year as, you know, portions of the year might be completed. But it also means especially the month of March, just kind of forget it. It's a blitz here just a, a flurry of activity, but it is, it is really powerful. And, and again, for us, it's the norm. Um, I do hope, you know, through especially the use of technology and the ability for um, our kind of bread and butter governments across the U.S. to be able to have access to more technology, that things like reporting times will be, will be improved. Do you see any role for the uh, FDTA, Financial Data Transparency Act? We've talked often about that on this podcast. From your vantage, are there challenges, opportunities? Is it a is it a non-event at this point? You know, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts too. I think, um, you know, and Liz referenced this, and and Justin, I, you know, we we had such a nice, we've had really nice sets of conversations, and I just really always appreciate your openness to being able to talk about these these big items. I have a lot of thoughts about the FDTA, and I, I think just to kind of unpack this, anytime you have a transformational change in our public finance industry, there are a lot of questions that start getting asked. Why? how, when, and who's paying for it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. I think right now in just the life cycle of FDTA, I think there's a lot of focus on the easy one, which is why. I think there's a lot of rhetoric right now, at least in my opinion, and I'm sure you know others would not necessarily agree, but I see a lot, whether it's at conferences or in our, our business papers, talking about FDTA from the lens of having to defend it or explain why it should happen. And I think a lot of times because of that, there folks who are advocating for it are doing it at the expense, maybe not intentionally, but at the expense of government. Why do we need it? Because things are behind or we're not sure where everything is or things like that. And I've really tried to, like when having conversations with folks like at your level or, or elsewhere, is to, you know what, in, in, my, in my conversations with any of my former clients, anyone I've been able to speak with about this who've called, because we're doing some interesting things. We're actually, we just built out our ACFR, um, our financial statements and XBRL, just to test it. We were really curious ourselves. But when people, when other governments call, I have not had one single conversation where someone has said they do not understand why the FDTA is happening. That's, I think, really, really important. And I, I would just, you know, let us focus on the how, um, the when, and, 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 you know, who's paying for it, but the implementation. Um, GASB 34's implementation is probably a good point of comparison because it created a lot of confusion, you know, and it's not, you know, I, I, governments, I feel like have so much that's happening right now that we are in a fortuitous position to be able to plan ahead and to do some testing in XBRL because we have these, you know, very frankly, very, very um, skilled uh, individuals, government accountants here 
who can help do that. Um, but I love I love that. That's really I, I take a lot of pride in being able to you know have these kinds of conversations out with especially bread and butter governments because whether it's eliminating fear or just helping people feel more comfortable with the potential cost or how it might work or what it even looks like, um, I'm really really proud of that. One thing I've appreciated hearing you say uh, before is is how so the FDTA is meant to make municipal finance data more accessible. The the data that's in these annual financial reports and other statements that 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 issuers file with the municipal securities rulemaking board. However, it it doesn't make governments do it any faster, right? <laughs> so yes, once the data is there. It, it should be easier to work with, but I don't think it addresses that. You know, getting back to the other question, the the issue of of timeliness on the part of on the part of governments, right? Completely. There's a I think a presumption that I would say two things. One, I think um, that some folks who may not be as familiar with local governments, especially, they believe it to be a panacea. And all of a sudden you're going to employ the FDTA and you're going to have your ACFRS out within 90 days. Um, you're going to have everything, you know, kind of an apples to apples with government A to government B to government C. And in factually, that's going to take some time, you know, and unless there are, you know, rules, of course, with disclosure timelines that are changed, it's very likely that we'll still have financials released on the 179th day. We have to acknowledge, like, what do we as governments have control over and what do we not have control over? Um, here at the city of Columbus for a number of years, we worked with big four accounting firms, super regional firms. And now, you know, we're partnering with the Ohio Auditor of State, but they really had to transform their workforce to be able to make that audit happen for us within 90 days. It is very, very, very much a partnership and it requires a lot of people, <laughs> boots on ground, um, doing a lot of things all at once. So I, I would love to, you know, kind of unpack those things that government does or does not have control in because that it's a presumption that I think is just really wrong right now, that it's all of a sudden going to make timely you know, accounting happen. Um, the second one is, is that I think with something like the FDTA, you know, the, the objective that I have is when you are able to have a living ecosystem of data, it will, you know, it, it's only as good as the data going into it, right? I've been talking to some folks, again, who are not like in the, in the weeds like we are, but maybe just really interested, they're technologists, maybe they're investors, and they have a presumption that government should just be able to press a button and all of their financials just get data dumped and it's done. And it's like, you know, this, this big button in the sky and because we, we just don't see why this is important, that, that's why we're not doing it. But as, as you all know, and this is, I might, might should have this caveat, I am not a governmental CPA, but I do understand the differences between cash basis accounting and accrual and, you know, gap. And this is this is why it's so important to build out the taxonomy in a way that makes sense. Um, and I am so excited. I, I, I really, really am. When I think about the FDTA, I am really technologically agnostic. We did do our act for an XBRL because I wanted to be able to inform ourselves. And it was really, really fantastic to learn and to talk about that with other governments. But as we all know, in a year's time and certainly in two years, there's going to be more technology, more acronyms, more AI you know, enabled chatbots or that we even know what to do with. And who knows? what the best language will ultimately be. But I do know that as we provide governmental data, 
at a large ecosystem level that is meaningful and it's accurate. I know that the technologists, the, the, the companies across this country, the engineering firms, you know, the capital planning firms, the water and sewer, big idea makers, those folks are going to be able to provide better products to local government. And holistically, we're all going to be able to make more informed decisions. So Megan, I know that you have uh, gone out and, and often give uh, public talks about the, the future of the industry and every every good industry, including this one, has its its futurists. We've talked about some of those trends already, particularly around role of tech, potential of, of technology and you've hinted a little bit at AI. Uh, but when you think about those sort of core themes around what uh, what we should be thinking about as the transformational sorts of trends in state and local public finance, what comes to mind? I'm really focused right now on management. And um, to explain that a little bit more, um, I'm going to say I believe that the emotional intelligence, I don't know if these words have ever been uttered on your podcast <laughs> before, but I'm going to say the emotional intelligence of local governments can and should be quantified. And I, I really do um, kind of, I'm going to try and explain this to a couple different angles. Um, something I've been watching, certainly, you know, in a state here, I'm in Ohio right now, of course, in the city of Columbus. And there are a lot of places like us around the country where there's a perpetual tension between maybe a state legislature and the largest city in the state. Um, and I'll, that's just a simply, you know, one example. But I, I think high emotional intelligence, high governmental emotional intelligence is what's going to separate, let's say, okay cities from great or thriving cities in the years to come. And to just go through a couple of, of maybe different examples that are in my head right now. Um, and this is the stuff, and we've talked about this already today, that maybe governments simply do not have control or some, certainly direct control over. So it's really important for us to see how government leaders respond um, and adapt essentially, and have to thread the needle through a lot of complexity. Our world is, is hyper complex. There's probably a lot of stuff that governments do not have control over today that folks like my predecessor, we thought he'd seen everything, really didn't have to worry too much about. So the volatility or the um, you know erosion of home rule, this is something that is very, very heavy in the state of Ohio. And you know, for example, let's take revenue bonds. We've historically built in the metric of quantifying control. We know revenue bond ratings are impacted by a government's ability to raise or increase water and sewer rates on its own, you know, without regulatory approval or things like that. But today, I feel like the lines of authority are much, much grayer and certainly more complex. And gas stoves are the simple metaphor for much, much larger energy transition issues, right? But we also have states in our country right now who declined to apply for funds from the Inflation Reduction Act because of political preferences. Therefore, you know, residents and, and you know, folks buying homes, they might not have access to things like very basic home energy rebates. These are these are things that I, I think are are just it just it surprises me that that anyone can question just good government at this point. Um, right now in Ohio, we just had reproductive health care on the ballot this past early November election, and it passed enshrining access to reproductive health care in our state's constitution. But this morning, I was on a number of phone calls because legislatively, um, our state uh, elected officials have re-upped the conversation of whether or not we need to employ bans here 
and Ohio on banking partners who might have something to do providing reproductive health care to their clients and so forth. And so I, I offer those as examples because we don't have much control as government leaders, as local governments, but we can control how we react to them. And so if we're able to exhibit agility, um, maybe creatively navigate around these kinds of barriers, barriers to us just being able to do what I would say is rationally very, very good work, but it's going to require exceptional leadership to, to do that. And on top of that, we also have um, things that we do have control over. So for example, using AI to alleviate labor shortages where we might not be able to find you know, employees, maybe we just simply shift employees and do some augmentation and we employ technology to do the task of, of, of other you know, places in the office. Um, with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, it's hitting us at a time where a lot of governments are in the throes of a staffing crisis. But for those governments who are able to put on like a really big thinking cap and conceptualize the highest and best use of those funds out of this very nebulous, nebulous bill, like that, that's that's a powerful example of high emotional intelligence. Where can we focus to get great gainful ROI in the years to come that will give our, our government more resiliency or put us in a better position um, to also do things like reinvent things occasionally. So like revenue streams as citizen behaviors may change um, and revenue you know, volatility might exist. Maybe it's simply bringing things more current, more fair, more equitable. And I, I think that's in some really why I believe management is more important than it ever has been. Um, if, if I were to advise the rating agencies, I always suggest really upping or expanding how they review management because you can have, frankly, uh, same year revenues, you know, maybe three year trends of, 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 you know, expenditures that are here. But unless you have the elected leadership making really good decisions, it still is not an adequate or accurate representation of the credit quality of that government. Yeah, we, were, we were just talking about that on a couple of episodes ago with with Chicago I mean the evidence of a of a of a plan among elected leadership and taking steps towards more fiscally sustainable city budget pension system um, you know you don't have to get all the way to the finish line before the rating upgrade I mean the, to, to that point I mean credit rating agencies really like to put a lot of weight on that kind of thing and then vice versa too Absolutely. I would argue that, you know, not only can we, but we, we must quantify the quality of government. Um, and I, I really do believe that just looking holistically across governments in this country, those that will be going from okay to good and good to great are going to be those who are making the agile and frankly, very reasonable decisions to be able to best position their governments for evolution, for more complexity. Um, and I, I, my hat is off. We've got, fortunately though, I'm, I'm very bullish and I hope, you know, just especially Justin, you as a professor feel the same way, but I'm, I'm very bullish about our, our next iteration of leaders. Um, and about more importantly, I think the role that local governments can play. Um, we have a lot of great people who are ready to dig in, certainly thinking about my uh, incredible interns here in this office, but I've been teaching now for, I think, nine years at the Glenn College, the John Glenn College at Ohio State. And I, I would say right now, you know, these young leaders, especially in every, every year, you can kind of see different characteristics in the students. And I'm sure, Justin, you can too. But my, my students 
right now who are um, ready to graduate, these young students, these young leaders, I, I think they've grown up on technology. They've grown up fluent in technology. And they've also had kind of these daily 21st century threats in their daily lives. So they've, of course, see the international war. They see COVID. They have the real-time effects of climate change. Um, these events are at their, the center of their thinking. And I think these students especially are well positioned to meet the challenges um, and seize, frankly, the unlimited opportunities of our future. Well, thanks so much, Megan Kilgore, City Auditor for the City of Columbus, Ohio, for sharing your thoughts today on lots of interesting topics, financial leadership, innovation, the future of public finance, and so much more. We really appreciate you giving us some time on the Public Money Pod. Thank you, too. And thank you for opening up the world of public finance to so many listeners around the country. Thanks again to Megan for that conversation. There's a lot to learn from Columbus in, in terms of how they think about financial reporting, how they how they do it. Um, very interested to see how their how the experimentation with XBRL and other readable data goes with their financial reports. This week's Rift from the Headlines is a follow-up to something we mentioned earlier on in our conversation with Megan and earlier on in the episode about S&P Global Ratings issuing a warning to local governments for having a late 2021 annual financial report. One of the cities that was issued a warning was Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it did not ultimately have its credit rating withdrawn by S&P because at that time the, the city you know, sat down with the rating agency and said, here's what's going on, here's what we're doing. And it had a plan essentially to catch up on their financial reports by the end of this year, calendar 2023. And so this story is by the Santa, in the Santa Fe Reporter. It's by a reporter named Evan Chandler, and it's an update on all of that. And the story says that the city now aims to submit its uh, last, its most recent financial report by May 15th, which is which is later than the state's deadline of December 15th. And the state has an annual deadline for cities to submit their financials to the, to the state for audit in mid-December every year. And since 2018, Santa Fe has missed that deadline by a lot, and uh, which led to this warning from S&P earlier this year. So what happened is it did complete its 2021 financial report in July, which was about a month or so after it got that warning. The 2022 audit is still in progress, but it's going to be completed by the end of the year. That's what the city finance director says, and that's what I, I presume she's been told by the outside auditing company that does these things. But the city being you know, missing its target for this most recent report, still in retrospect, it's still getting it in within a year later, which for Santa Fe is is, is a lot of progress. Um, and the city manager notes in the story that typically one audit takes eight months to complete. Santa Fe is completing three audits in 11 months. That's lightning speed, really. It's an extraordinary accomplishment, said the city manager. This has been an ongoing issue in Santa Fe for quite some time. The As I mentioned, it's been going on since since 2018. They have not had an on-time um, audit submitted. But the a couple of folks in the city, council members and, and, and the finance director noted that this is kind of a, this is a st- systemic issue um, that's been going on for a couple of decades at this point with Santa Fe. So it sounds to me like this warning from S&P was perhaps uh, maybe the, the wake up call or the kick that the city needed to um, to really put some put some things into place. So the city finance director, Emily Oster, said that the city has done 
So they had this audit plan. The city has also made progress on filling key positions, modernizing its IT systems, and implementing critical accounting processes to put the city on a path to completing its uh, fiscal 2024 audit in a timely manner. So in other words, it's made a bunch of changes. They're getting new tech, doing some doing some new things. And the, I, the goal is, of course, that this is not going to be a, an issue anymore going forward after they wrap everything up for fiscal 2023. And of course, you have a council member uh, towards the end of the story, you know, saying that they want to they want to bring the auditing outside auditors uh, before council and ask them a bunch of questions. <laughs> so uh, so there's there's always going to be politics uh, woven in with with something like this. But what I'm reading in this story is a lot of those things that we talked about with with Megan in terms of with Columbus, the idea of having timely audits and having a very specific way that you do it, like that is ingrained. And in that way, it is a systemic thing with Columbus. But on the opposite end, you have a city like Santa Fe, which is certainly not alone in this in this issue, but just timely audits have not been ingrained. And and in that way, it's it it is a systemic issue. And so they're trying to to change that. It seems like a lot of this, yes, it comes down to actually doing the audit and, and getting those financials in order. But certainly it sounds like step one is is the mindset. And I think that's what that's what we heard from Megan too in terms of, you know, how how do you do this? How do you do things quickly? How do you turn it around? It I think it starts with that and and it seems like that's what we're 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 seeing here in Santa Fe. Justin, what what were some of the things, takeaways that that you got out of this uh, progress update? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a great, <clears throat> great piece for for all the reasons that you mentioned. It's it nicely contrasts in so many ways the the conversation that we had with Megan, but also highlights a lot of those core themes. It, it's something we talk about the, on this podcast all the time. That so much of what we do in state and local government, public money management, is about organization culture. It's really an extension of the culture within an organization. These are complicated tasks that require a lot of really skilled people working really hard to do something like produce the annual comprehensive financial report. And if the culture of the organization embraces that and says, we're going to approach it in a way that says this is something really important for this organization to do and do well, then you're going to get a particular set of processes and a particular kind of outcome. If it's seen as a compliance thing, if it's seen as something that's sort of necessary, if it's not something that seems to be valued by the elected leadership, then you get a very different culture that arises and, and a very different set of outcomes. And so that's not to say that the, the the culture in Santa Fe is is broken, but it's very clear from from this story that they're sort of trying all of these different things to get everybody aligned, thinking about changing processes, trying to have a different relationship with the external auditors trying to strike a different relationship with the state. And then meanwhile, you have everybody else trying to rearrange the incentives. The state threatening to withhold capital projects funds, the ratings agencies threatening to withhold to withdraw ratings. I mean, all of these things, it can make it really, really difficult to try to align everybody. But at the end of the day, that's exactly what needs to happen. And to their credit, that's what has happened in Columbus. It does raise, I was thinking, two interesting sort of follow-up questions. One, to what extent do those sort of negative incentives work, right? As, as a researcher, I'm, I'm sitting here asking, does the threat of the state withholding capital projects funds seem to to change behavior? And if this is not the first or the last time that sort of thing has happened, but it does make you kind of wonder when and where that's happened elsewhere. And then the other piece of it is just trying to get at that, as Megan had kind of talked about, really does open the question of, you know, if, if there's only so many people available to do this work, who have the the deep expertise in the in the quirky world of state and local government accounting? It does raise the question then of AI 
all sorts of other technological tools to augment that expertise and help to to automate a lot of these processes, get a lot of that just day-to-day work done faster. If that's a possibility, then you might see stories like this become less less common in the future. Uh, and at the same time, again, the, the tools are great, but the tools are only going to work if the culture is aligned in a way that says, this is, a, this is something that's important, we're going to do it, we're going to do it well. That's in some ways the much harder thing than implementing new technology to make it work. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.